Welcome to season four of the Book Marketing Action Podcast. Over the past three years, we've been featuring exciting guests, real conversations, and actions you can take to reach the biggest possible audience for your work. We'll continue that this season, and we're taking it up a notch as we seek to bring you cutting-edge insights not only about marketing, but about all aspects of your journey as an author. We can't wait to share everything you'll need to be successful in spreading your important work with the world. I'm Becky Robinson, your host for the Book Marketing Action Podcast. I'm also the founder and CEO of Weaving Influence, the author of Reach, Create the Biggest Possible Audience for Your Message, Book, or Cause, and a strategic book marketer, avid reader, runner, mom, and wife. Thank you for choosing to learn with me, and I hope you'll take action as a result of listening to this show. If you benefit from the show, please subscribe, rate, and review to help us reach more listeners. Also, be sure to visit weavinginfluence.com and click the blog tab to find all the notes and links for each show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Book Marketing Action Podcast. This is actually episode number one of season four, and I'm so thrilled because we have some amazing guests lined up this season, and I'm especially excited today to talk with Jane Friedman. I don't remember when I first came across Jane and her work, but I have been avidly following her on Instagram and looking at the amazing, valuable content about the publishing industry that she shares. And I encourage you, if you're not already following Jane, to definitely check out her work. But Jane, I want to give you a moment to tell our listeners about your work in the world beyond what I've shared so far. I've worked for about 25 years in the publishing and media industry. I started off in traditional publishing and I've been in traditional, I started my publishing career like while I was still in college. So I've never been in any other industry, which uh, my, I think is unusual maybe for someone my age. Um, I ended up in university teaching for a brief period, but by and large, I've focused on authorship um, economic models of publishing. I'm particularly interested in how writers can forge sustainable careers, especially during a time of great transformation in the industry. And, you know, I speak as someone who makes a full-time living as a writer and since 2014. So I'm well aware of, you know, the challenges, the opportunities, the tools, um, and, you know, what frustrates people. Well, I can't wait to dive into this conversation and, um, as I mentioned to you, this episode is going live in January of 2023. So we thought it might be fun to look back on 2022 in the publishing industry. So I'm curious, uh, what were some highlights for you in looking at the publishing industry in 2022? Well, it was an interesting year for coming out of the pandemic and seeing if the record sales of 2020 and 2021 would hold. Um Book publishing is a mature industry, so that means if you have a year that's flat in growth, it's a good thing. <laughs> so the pandemic was unusual in that you saw single-digit growth, like 3 to 5%, and then up to 8 or 9% in 2021 on top of you know 2020. It's just like everyone is still astonished. And so everyone was kind of on the edge of their seat waiting to see if 2022 would bottom out. And it really hasn't. I mean, it's not as good as last year. Um, we're probably going to see 5% down in, in terms of print book sales. Um, but that's still ahead of where the industry was pre-pandemic. So you have to see it in that context. 
So that begs the question of what's selling more, why or where are things selling? And one of the things that's really driven book sales is TikTok um, or the book talk community more specifically. Uh, I think that it's hard, it's hard to look at any trend article or look at where sales are happening without a reference to book talk. Um, now there are, there are lots of things about that that make people nervous and anxious, which you know we could go there if you want. But by and large, it's seen as positive activity because these are enthusiastic, heartfelt recommendations from readers. It's very organic. We're not talking about stuff that's paid for. It's just coming, it's arising out of the community serendipitously. Um, and publishers can't control it, <laughs> so which is both a blessing and a curse, depending on where you sit in the industry. Um, Colleen Hoover is the big standout example here. She's on TikTok herself as an author, but even if she wasn't, you know, her books are getting recommended all the time. And she held at one point over the summer six of the top ten best-selling books in the country. And like, we have never seen anything like that before. It's just astonishing. She's still, even as we speak, I think has four of the top 10 spots. She's also unusual in that she's kind of a new model of author in my mind. She started off self-publishing about 10 years ago. Um, she works with multiple publishers. She's not locked into any particular company. She writes in different categories or genres, like she's not repeating the same thing again and again. And so this just makes her very unique. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how her career continues. I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't think that this is like, she's reached the peak and it's all downhill from here, but it, boy, it's hard to imagine what would look more successful than what she's already accomplished. So Jane, the phenomenon with book talk is a really interesting one to me because I'm primarily a marketer of nonfiction books and business books. So I'm curious, what, if anything, are you seeing regarding nonfiction on book talk? So this is where things get particularly interesting because from what I've seen, authors who are in the nonfiction space aren't necessarily connecting with the book talk community specifically. They're connecting with people in their interest area. Um, now, I'll use a poet as an example. I realize that's not exactly nonfiction, although fun fact, publishing treats poetry sales under nonfiction. <laughs> I don't know why. So there's a poet on, on TikTok, her name's Shelby Lee, and she focuses on mental health issues and her poetry concerns mental health issues. And so when she started doing videos, it was, you know, reading her poetry and speaking to issues that interest her audience. It wasn't it was, I mean, she may have used the hashtag book talk, but it, she was reaching her people more through mental health awareness hashtags, uh, people who are searching for mental health. So I think if you're in the nonfiction space, that would be a far better approach to take because at this point, you know, the book talk hashtag and community is, it's deluged because everyone knows how successful it is in moving books or bringing attention. And so you have to get more focused and niche in your approach. So I'm curious, Jane, uh, to reflect on that. So with the deluge of people using that book talk hashtag and trying to capitalize on success like Colleen Hoover has seen, you know, it almost feels like another J.K. Rowling, you know, uh, people who aspire 
to make making a career of writing only look at those standout successes mm-hmm. as the standard. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, what do you see from authors who may be selling a lower volume of books and how BookTok or TikTok is helping them expand awareness and reach for their work? It may or may not. I think this is the dilemma because a lot of book talk sales or the visibility there happens of its own accord. Like it's really hard to force it. It's generally word of mouth among readers. Um, People of all ages are on TikTok, but I think it's fair to say that it's a lot of young people who are, are driving the book talk phenomenon. So, you know, if you're an author of a certain age um, and you may not even be interested in TikTok, I, it would be hard for me to suggest, oh, why don't you get on there and make some videos? It, unless you already have an affinity for that platform and you're genuinely interested in that community, it's going to be really hard to like kind of engineer something. You have to come at it with an idea of service or curiosity, and you have to participate with others who are influencers or, you know, uh, popular already. And I, you know, what I'm saying is true of all social media. Um, I think where TikTok differs is, is in, no one has to follow you in order to see your videos. So there isn't a lot of emphasis on gaining a lot of followers necessarily. There's a lot of emphasis on what is the algorithm going to do today? Um, Is it going to favor the content that I'm producing? So I think some people get a little bit addicted. If they like TikTok, they get a little bit addicted to creating the content because it's like, you know, um, playing the lottery or a slot machine. Today, are you going to hit it? Um, Some people call it a numbers game. Anyway, that's just pulling back. Um, I think that I would just warn anyone before you jump on there expecting to make a splash. I, I would spend, if you haven't experienced it yet, I would ex- I would spend maybe a solid two to four weeks just observing what's happening in your space. The other thing with TikTok that I think is really hard to advise people on is that some portion of it is very audio driven and it's driven by trends, things happening in the moment. And so when you see really successful TikTok accounts, and this could be from a bookstore, a publisher, an author, they're often responding to or building on um, audio trends and things, Q&As or things that are just bubbling up to the surface. And so you have to like be browsing a lot of these uh, videos for hours a week in order to be able to jump on those trends. That's really helpful insight, Jane. So let's go back to overall observances or uh, trends in 2022 in publishing. So you you mentioned that print book sales were down 5%, but still stayed ahead of where we were pre-pandemic. What else did you see in 2022 that was interesting to you? The audiobook market is going through some interesting shifts or consolidations. Um, The business model of it is is very fluid. So by that, I mean, if you look in the United States, the predominant model is the Audible model, which is you get a credit a month for your audiobook, and it's not an all-you-can-consume sort of subscription plan. In Europe, it's very different. A lot of the predominant models there are based on all you can consume, or you have maybe a cap of like 50 hours a month that you can listen. So it's not a credit-based system. And what we're seeing happen is big companies like Spotify, 
um, Storytel, which is very popular in Europe, um, they're buying up other companies <laughs> that are US based in order to like kind of get a foothold and expand the audience for audio. Uh, so Spotify bought a company called Findaway Voices that is a big player in audio in the United States. And they're trying to, you know, create more casual listeners for audiobooks. Um, and but publishers, notably the, the biggest publisher in the US, Penguin Random House refuses to have their audiobooks available in anything but a credit model service so that they'll have their books in Audible, but they won't have their books in like a Storytel or something like that. So it's just very interesting to see because audio has, for some categories, audio has outpaced ebook sales. And that's a surprise for many people. They don't realize that that's either how far behind ebooks have fallen in popularity. Um, part of that has to do with pricing. They're awfully expensive for what they are. And just also that audiobooks sell in such volumes that they would beat out ebooks. So it's, it'll, and the other thing that's happening is AI, um, synthetic voices. So those tools or that technology is getting so much better. And I think we're going to see more publishers and more authors take advantage of that AI to produce audiobooks that are acceptable in the market and help reach new audiences. Would you expect a lower price point on those AI-driven audiobooks? Yes. Um, the big sticking point right now, though, is that Audible currently doesn't allow AI audio in their store. But I don't know that they can keep that restriction for much longer, given how the technology is improving. So what else? What surprised you in 2022? Uh, I don't know if it was a surprise. Well, I, I hate to use the word surprise for it, but um, Penguin Random House tried to buy another major publisher, Simon & Schuster. So in traditional publishing, there's the big five. And Simon & Schuster is one of the is a sizable. And if Penguin Random House bought it, it would make Penguin Random House about two and a half times the size of its nearest competitor. And we would have the big four instead of the big five. So the Department of Justice challenged this set of, uh, under antitrust law. And so that court case unfolded in August. And there was so much testimony from people inside publishing who never talk about the business for the record. You know, it can be a very opaque business. People don't really openly talk about the numbers or the money or who's earning what. Um, advances tend to be very secretive. And so the trial testimony is, of course, open to anyone who cares to look for it. And you have all of these big executives on the record about the business, um, often saying they don't know what sells, it's all a crapshoot, um, that they expect to lose money. Um, on a good number of books, and it's only a small selection that actually keeps the publisher afloat. It also really underlined the importance of a publisher's size in terms of its backlist and its back office in order to be profitable. So if you're a very new publisher and you don't have a backlist, you're actually missing a big part of your financial engine for keeping the company afloat because you need the money coming in from those titles that you published years ago in order to fund the new ones. In any event, um, there are lots of surprises that came out of that for people who weren't particularly knowledgeable about book publishing or the economics of it. Um, and then the judge 
uh, agreed with the Department of Justice, sided with them, and that merger has is is dead. Simon and Schuster will still be sold, but now the question is, who will the buyer be? Given that um, antitrust issues could come up if another big publisher tries to buy it, so we'll see. Um, I think. People in publishing were surprised that the Department of Justice chose this case to put its, you know, energy and money behind. Um, let's say other like everyone's looking at Amazon now, saying, "Why don't you, why don't you do something about them? Uh, why are you looking at us?" But you know, the Department of Justice has bigger goals. Let's say they were trying to make a case based on harm to the people who are who are working like the, in this case, the authors, the case was based on, oh, advances for authors will go down if this merger happens rather than prices for consumers will go up. So there, there's this larger um, policy aim that now gives the government some leeway to fight antitrust based on harm to workers rather than harm to consumers. So I'm curious to hear, Jane, what, what's your take on that? Is that a win for authors? I don't, I don't think it changes anything for authors whatsoever um, because the, the government's case focused on anticipated top-selling books. Um, so authors who are receiving more than a quarter of a million dollars for an advance. Uh, that, as far as the trial was concerned, that was estimated to be about 2% of all book deals. I mean, we're talking about the elites of the industry, and I don't know that a whole lot of people care whether or not Stephen King gets 10 million or 8 million for his next book deal. You know, it's just, it feels like, come on. Um, I don't think it changes anything for the average author. And in fact, if you look at some of the data presented at the trial, it showed that the last time we had one of these ginormous mergers, which was between Penguin and Random House, uh, advances actually stayed the same or actually increased a little bit if you're earning, let's say, in the mid five figures. So I don't, you know, I'm not saying that authors will be worse off, but I don't think it's going to change anything. The, the business will continue exactly in the way it has before. So what do you think has been most challenging for authors looking back to 2022? I think people are struggling with the power and the weight of Amazon. That's not necessarily new, um, but it's just, I, I think there's just, I've seen, I'm seeing more and more confusion about how to sell on Amazon and frustration that often you have to advertise if you're self-publishing on Amazon in order to get visibility. At the same time, there have been these privacy concerns and changes made around uh, Facebook, um, changes that Apple has made that affect the efficacy of Facebook ads. And also there are privacy changes that affect email marketing. And so like there's, even though I think societally, we can agree that these issues need to be better managed and paid attention to in terms of privacy, for authors who are trying to advertise their books, like they've had their rug pulled out from under them if they're focused on advertising on Facebook in particular. Um, the targeting isn't as good and the, the pricing is often very expensive unless you have a large catalog of titles and you can feel assured that if you get a new reader through an ad that they're gonna continue on and read the rest of your books. That's really helpful insight to consider. Um, so I'm curious, 
just reflecting on some of the traditional publishing trends that you shared, Jane, for someone who might be listening to this call who's an aspiring author who hasn't published yet, uh, from where uh, you're looking ahead to 2023, what do you think is the best path if authors are trying to decide between self-publishing, hybrid publishing, or traditional publishing? I know there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to publishing, but I'm curious just to hear how you might advise people who are making those choices. One thing I didn't touch on yet is how the pandemic has kind of thrown a wrench in the speed with which things get considered. Um, So the response times are slower from agents and publishers um, when that will resolve, I can't really say, but I, there's just a lot of annoyance, uh, people losing patience over how long it's taking, um, to get things submitted, to get feedback, to get rejections. So you have to, if you are going to consider traditional publishing, you have to factor in how much time it's going to take and how much longer it might take. You know, it's already like a one to three year process. Um, given some of the slowdowns, it could stretch longer. Also, currently, everyone's tightening their belt. Everyone's, you know, I'm sure everyone's seen the headlines about recession, inflation, layoffs. You know, publishing is not immune to those things. So the other thing is that supply chain issues have affected publishing in very specific ways that have raised the costs of paper um, shipping. Like, again, this is not specific to publishing, but the situation was already bad prior to the pandemic and the pandemic just lit everything on fire. So if you're doing anything that would require a heavier lift, let's say like it's a, you want to do this full color, gorgeous coffee table book, you know, it's just a much bigger hurdle to clear now, given some of the complications in the supply chain, like the publisher has to really, really want it, see that it's worth the risk Um, So you have to think about a little bit about what you're asking a publisher from a production standpoint, if you want to do something special or unusual, they just might not be able to do it and they might pass on projects that cause too many issues like that. Um, On the self-publishing end, the people who are succeeding right now are the ones who already reach their audience in some way. So it could be online, offline, like whether you're selling books in the back of the room after a talk or uh, you have an email newsletter, you can spread the word that way or social media. You, you need to know already how you're going to reach your readers because just, just because you put the publish the book on Amazon means squat. Nobody's going to know it's there. There's like 1 million new titles coming out every year. Um, so the competition is immense and you, you trying to, it's a needle in a haystack territory. So the authors who are succeeding, aside from the ones who already have their audience, are, let's say, genre fiction authors who are doing a series. So, you know, if you're doing romance, for example, and you plan out a five or 10 book series, you can start to expect some momentum once you're, you know, you get midway in. It's usually by book three, four, five, that you're starting to see returns. I think most, most writers I meet, are they don't have the patience for either side of this. They want to see immediate results. Uh, and that's just not how book publishing works, no matter what business model you're operating on, because it takes time. If you're a nonfiction author, I think it's a better picture, assuming you're already known, you have some sort of platform, 
um, you have that reach that we discussed. Um, and so then the book just becomes like the exclamation point at the end of the sentence where everything you've been doing up until this point, it kind of feeds right into this book that is now kind of the packaged version of all of your best wisdom in one place. I love that description of a nonfiction book chain. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, let's just talk for a few minutes before we wrap up our conversation about marketing. You know, what are you seeing from authors in terms of their willingness to market? You know, as you were saying, everyone's looking for quick solutions. You know, they want the fast track. That's what I see time and again with the authors that I'm supporting. So, you know, what are you seeing work or, uh, you know, what are you seeing that is inspiring authors to engage more and market their work? I think people are finally waking up to the reality that social media by itself is not terribly effective. Um, It's great for conversations and relationship building and taking the pulse of your community. But as far as like the hard sell, not so much. And it's shifting sands, you know, especially with Twitter right now, you know, as we speak, everyone's wondering how long it will last. Um, They're looking for alternatives. And there's this huge sense of loss for people who have built platforms there to see it decline potentially and to see that, oh, I can't, I can't stay here anymore for, for various reasons. So what, what do you have instead, if you're not going to be uh, social media focused um, email, I think is where a lot of authors are going. They're looking at more seriously at building an email newsletter strategy, not a paid newsletter, but something that's both editorial in nature and serves a marketing purpose of staying in front of people. You know, years ago when I used to counsel authors, start your email newsletter list early, you know, don't wait until your book comes out to think about this. Um, start and start sending it regularly. Even if you think you have nothing to say, I got a lot of pushback. I still get pushback. I try, I try to use the metaphor of like um, what I, of what an actor does. This was Brian Cranston specifically, the, you know, the lead actor in Breaking Bad, before he became known and he was just doing bit parts and X-Files or whatever, every time he had a gig or a small win or something happened that was newsworthy, he hand wrote postcards to everyone in his network and sent it out. Look what I'm doing now. And I think the email newsletter is the author's version of that is keeping people aware and keeping your name in their line of sight, if nothing else. So I try to use that to convince authors that your email newsletter doesn't have to be like the Mona Lisa. It can just be, here's the latest thing I did. Here's my latest podcast, or here's the, this interesting thing I read, or here's my latest win. It does not have to be some thousand word um, treatise. Uh, that you've paid an editor to go over. I think people tend to look at it in much too of a formal way. Um, in terms of other marketing that's happening, the the classics right now and have been for years are anything related to promotions or discounts for eBooks. So BookBub is the biggest service in that space um, where you, you pay a fee and you become the featured book Uh, for their newsletter send, and they have it across every conceivable category, fiction and nonfiction alike. And that still reliably moves copies, but it's on a discount basis. Still, usually, even if you're selling, and by discount, I'm talking like a one 
$1 to $2, $3 tops ebook. Um, and so usually people earn back their money and then they get lots of reviews. And if they have other books, those often end up selling kind of an afterglow situation. There are other competitors to BookBub that authors love to use. Um, Written Word Media is the company that hosts some of the best. And then the giveaway, whether it's um, an ebook giveaway or some other giveaway, it remains very popular, especially for like a first book in a series or an older book, because it just it serves as the gateway drug to the author's entire backlist. I love that. And, you know, while we're on this topic, I'm really curious to get your opinion on this, Jane. I hope we can hash it out. I have noticed that some hybrid publishers that I've observed, and I'm not going to name them, or even some marketing companies have an approach with authors who are self-publishing or hybrid publishing, that when their book first comes out, they discount the ebook at launch as a means of getting the bestseller in the category. And their entire focus is on that first week or first month, low price Kindle book uh, to get that early momentum and as many sales as possible in the first month. So I'm not going to tell you my opinion of that approach. <laughs> I'm going to be quiet and let you tell me uh, what, what your take on that approach is. I mean, I guess I'd have to know the larger context. Like everything is so dependent on the author and, and, what's the book after this one and and so many other factors. But generally I would say Amazon rewards steady. And I'm thinking Amazon here, cause that's where most book sales happen. Sorry. Um, indie bookstore lovers, but Amazon tends to like steady, consistent sales over a long period of time. Now I, you could probably, I guess, get your numbers up with that discount in the first month. But if once you take the book off discount and the sales drop off a cliff, if that's what happens, um, then your book is going to fall in the rankings accordingly. So I don't, I don't know. I feel like you're stealing from yourself in the future by doing that. Um, traditional publishers tend to either do a really big pre-order or giveaway with influencers and people who have a chance to make a difference um, prior to the book's release. And then they go out at full price. And then like in six to 12 months, maybe a little, maybe even 18 months, that's when they'll do the discount or the book bub uh, on the ebook, especially if there's a new book coming out. So I tend to see that discount strategy works the best as a way to juice interest in sales and pre-orders for the book that's coming up. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if that aligns with your thinking, but I, I, it seems very short term to me. I don't know that it's a uh, best in the long haul. Yeah, I'm exactly aligned with you. And I typically do advise my clients exactly how you are. You know, I like to think about book marketing as being a long-term investment. And so if you're thinking about two years, at least yeah. to market a nonfiction title, you need to have ways to keep the book in the conversation. So that ebook discount, nine months, 12 months, 18 months down the road is a perfect way to draw new attention to the title. Yep. So thank you for that. I feel, uh, I don't know. I feel some backup on that topic. <laughs> Good, <laughs> Jane, I'm curious to hear about the, the kind of advice you might give authors about Amazon reviews. So how important are they and how many should you aim to get when your book is released? So first, there's just the human psychology element of this, which is if someone who doesn't know who you are, doesn't really, has just discovered your book, 
one of the first things they're going to do is look at how many reviews it has and what the average rating is and maybe read some of the recent reviews. I mean, we do this with anything we buy, restaurants, uh, vacuum cleaners, um, music. It's just human nature, especially if we feel like there's a risk in making a purchase. So that's one reason you want to have some number of reviews very quickly to reassure the people who have no clue who you are that this book is a good bet or it's, it's for them. That said, everyone knows um, that a higher number of Amazon reviews helps with visibility when people are conducting searches and you know, no one knows what the right number is there, but I would say, you know, you want to get past several dozen. Usually most people are shooting for over a hundred. Your publisher is going to encourage you to just get as many as possible as quickly as possible, but you have to be cautious because Amazon knows that people are trying to game the system. And if they see a lot of reviews flooding in early on from people who haven't actually bought the book, those reviews either aren't going to show up um, they may get blocked after a short period of time because they think it's someone with who's a family friend or has been paid, um, and then they won't come up as a verified purchase. So there is some amount of patience that, again, that you need to see some of some of this activity happen organically. Goodreads is a good alternative. Like if you're doing a lot of um, marketing for pre-orders or pre-launch and you want to get the buzz going prior to the book release, then getting people to leave those reviews on Goodreads is kind of a workaround. Um, the other thing I think people forget about Amazon customer reviews is that there's also an editorial review section. And so make sure that if you have done anything that's related to paying for a review or getting blurbs or testimonials, if it's from a mainstream media outlet, they really belong in that editorial review section. Um, some beginning authors get these two things confused. So I just want to make sure that people realize that we're talking about very separate things here. That is super helpful, Jane. And I love hearing that. Um, one of the things I nerd out about is the number of reviews in the top 20 books on Amazon. So any day, go to the top 20 books on Amazon, and any book that's been out for a length of time has thousands of reviews, not dozens of reviews. And I think that's a factor of a lot of people have bought and read the book. Yes. I mean, it's a small percentage of people who will actually leave a review. I mean, maybe one to 3%, you know, so when you see those thousands of reviews, you're looking at lots of sales driving that. Yes. Well, so I'm so sad that we're coming to the end of our conversation. And this just means that I hope to have you back on the show again in the future. Jane, maybe we can make this a yearly thing. Um, but at the end of every episode of the Book Marketing Action Podcast, we always want to leave our listeners with a couple of action steps that they can take immediately uh, to increase the reach of their books. And so I'm curious, Jane, what would be your top two action steps that you would recommend to those who might be listening to this show? If you haven't started an email newsletter, please start today and you can do it very simply. If you feel intimidated, Substack is a great place to get started. If no other place or uh, mailer light is my big recommendation there. The other piece would be to think about or to set aside an hour and brainstorm a hundred small tasks 
that would help promote visibility of yourself or your book. And by small tasks, I mean things that could be accomplished in about 15 to 30 minutes. Because I strongly believe that successful book marketing isn't about one huge Hail Mary or one big break. Um, it's about the accumulation of these little tiny steps every single day. So um, there's a writing corollary to this. I think it was Ray Bradbury who said, um, if you want to improve your writing, write 30 short stories, one short story a day, because no one can write 30 bad short stories in a row. <laughs> I love that. There's the same thing applies to marketing. You can't have 30 bad marketing ideas. A few of them are going to really work. And then you can start repeating. I think it's too many people see marketing as um, a gumball machine where you put in a quarter and you get a gumball out every time. And that's just not what happens. It's more like uh, to bring the slot machine back. It's, it's like the slot machine. You have no idea what's going to happen. And so you have to try a lot of small bets. I love that, Jane. So can you share with our listeners how they can best stay connected to you and your amazing expertise? Best place to go is my website, janefriedman.com. That has links to everything I do, classes, newsletters, and more. Jane, thank you so much. I really look forward to continuing to follow and learn from you into the future. And here's to a great year for publishing in 2023. Thank you so much, Becky. As always, if I can be of help to you, please reach out to me. I'm Becky at weavinginfluence.com. And please be sure to tune in for all the episodes of season four. There are more great guests coming soon. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Book Marketing Action Podcast. If you haven't already, I hope you'll buy a copy of my new book, Reach. Create the biggest possible audience for your message, book, or cause. When you buy the book, you'll unlock a free course of REACH resources with more than 50 additional learning resources available exclusively for those who buy the book. Find out more and find links to buy the book at beckyrobinson.com forward slash book. If you've already read the book, I'd appreciate an Amazon review. Thanks.